So my name is Nathan Vreet, um, and Mr. Brandon has decided to let me try preaching this morning. So um, this being my first sermon and everything, and seeing as I probably have the record for the youngest person to preach from this pulpit, I'd, um, I'd hope you guys would go easy on me. <clears throat> um, whether you do or not, I'm going to be talking to you about Habakkuk today. Um, the title of my sermon is Habakkuk's Kerfuffle. All right, so... Uh, the word kerfuffle is a noun that refers to either like a fuss or a commotion or an argument, um, that kind of thing. I chose to use it in the title for two reasons. First, um, kerfuffle is just a really fun word to say. Kerfuffle, try it sometime. Secondly, I chose it because the whole book is basically a transcript of an argument between God and Habakkuk. God won, of course. But, and, and Habakkuk was thoroughly convinced at the end. But what's really interesting about this book is Habakkuk's response after God has said his peace. So while we go through this book, uh, I want you guys to be thinking about this quote from John Piper's sermon, Sorrowful but Always Rejoicing. Here's the quote. What the world needs from the church is our indomitable joy in Jesus in the midst of suffering and sorrow. So let me say that again. What the world needs from the church is our indomitable joy in Jesus in the midst of suffering and sorrow. So consider the phrasing, indomitable joy in Jesus. So not just general amusement from a funny joke, but rather uh, undefeatable, impenetrable, invincible, and deep, deep joy in Jesus in the midst of suffering and sorrow. So this joy is independent of circumstances what the world needs from the church. This indomitable joy that's rooted in Jesus is what the world needs from the church. This is what makes us so different from the rest of the world. True joy is a rare thing given by the Spirit to those that are his, and that is what makes Christians odd. It's, it's just unnatural. So what the world needs from the church is our indomitable joy in Jesus in the midst of suffering and sorrow. So, just so we're on the same page here, I'm, I'm turning 18 today. Um, my mom tells me that I was born somewhere around 9.45, so technically I'm still 17 until then. Um, and, but in light of that, I can see how what I'm going to say is going to sound odd. Um, Habakkuk is all about rejoicing in the face of crushing sorrows and a total lack of understanding. So listening to me, encouraging you to trust God through horrible circumstances like what Habakkuk was going through it might sound a little fake or assuming. Um, so I understand that, but I still chose this passage for a reason. I'm going to have to be going through those same kind of struggles as I get older. Um, and I need to be reminded what I need to do when, th that, when they come. So yes, I'm preaching to you all, but I'm also preaching to myself. The idea is that since this is my first sermon, um, I'll have a really hard time forgetting this. Okay, so let's begin. Habakkuk is a relatively short book consisting of three chapters. It's located near the end of the Old Testament. So while you look for it, let me quickly give you some historical context. Um, it's especially important in understanding this book. Habakkuk was probably written somewhere between 640 and 609 B.C. The reason for the range is that there's... Okay. The reason for the range is that there's very little 
historical markers on what's been happening globally or on the, in the author's life. Um, we do know, however, that it was written before Israel was taken captive by Babylon. The Babylonians, or more commonly called the Chaldeans in Habakkuk, were a vicious pagan people, unrighteous in all their ways. Um, take a look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. Let me read it for you. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Furthermore, consider verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. So entire nations are scared of these people. Um, Habakkuk likens entire nations to fish just waiting to be caught. He compares them to mindless, mouth-breathing things that eat worms. And he actually goes a step further and compares these nations to the worms. Um, Look at uh, verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. So the Chaldeans are the fishermen. Everyone else is fish. In addition to being a vicious, warlike people, uh, the Chaldeans were worshiping false gods. Look with me at verse 11 of chapter 1. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their own God. And then verse 16. Therefore he offers to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. So, basically, we can confirm that the Chaldeans were nasty people. Um, So that's the lowdown on the Chaldeans. Vicious, unrighteous pagans. So now we turn our attention to Israel. Um, Habakkuk doesn't say much about what Israel was doing specifically, but from chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we can be certain that they were not a model of exemplary behavior. It says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So from Habakkuk, we can see four general areas where Israel is severely lacking. First, they're violent. Uh, We see that from verses 2b and 3b. Second, they're destructive. We see that in verse 3b. Uh, Third, strife and contention abound, again, from verse 3b. Fourth, there is a lack of real justice. According to verse 4, there is some semblance of justice, but it's been so perverted that it doesn't really qualify anymore. So Habakkuk doesn't really tell us much about what Israel is doing, but from other historical books we can see that they have been doing a number of things that are blatantly against God's law. From Jeremiah, we can see that they're worshiping false gods, and they were sacrificing their children to these idols. But that's not even the worst of it. Um, They were not only violent, destructive, idolatrous, and sacrificing their children, but they didn't see what was wrong with that. They thought that everything between God and themselves was just peachy. So that is what Habakkuk is living through when he asks God, where are you, and how long before you answer me, and aren't you paying attention? So after Habakkuk describes the Israelites and what they've been doing, and after he asks God, when will you listen to me, 
Habakkuk gets his answer, and it's not what he wanted to hear at all. So God says in Habakkuk uh, chapter 1, 5 through 11, that yes, he is paying attention, and yes, he is working. In fact, he's got a plan that Habakkuk is not going to believe. Habakkuk's, sorry, God's plan is to raise up the Chaldeans to punish the Israelites. So he then goes on to describe the Chaldeans, their ferocity, and their paganism. But chances are quite high that this was not the first time that Habakkuk had actually heard of these people. In fact, he knew quite a bit about them. He then used this information that he knew about the Chaldeans to tell God that his answer was inadequate. It's clear that Habakkuk is not happy with the answer that God gave him. Look at verses 12 and 13. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, a rock, have established them for proof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So he's saying, you can't do that. You can't even look at evil. So how and why are you going to let the Chaldeans, of all people, ransack us? So he's really not happy with God's plan. Instead of submitting to God's will, Habakkuk points out the vileness of his chosen tools. They're pagans, he says. They just keep killing nations, and you're just going to let that keep happening. So before we get snooty about Habakkuk's disbelieving attitude, um, let's examine ourselves. Imagine with me that it's you in Habakkuk's position. You are living in a nation filled with the people of God, but instead of doing what they're supposed to, these people of God are rebelling against him in horrible ways. So you cry out to God and ask him for hope. But when God answers, he tells you in no uncertain terms that things are only going to get worse. In fact, a vicious pagan people are going to conquer your own nation and probably steal or destroy the homes of your friends and neighbors while taking them and maybe even you captive to who knows where. Oh, and there's no promise that you'll survive. So if you tell me that your reaction would be a whole lot different than Habakkuk's, you'd understand if I didn't believe you. Um, but let's find something a little closer to home, just to prove it. If you can remember being in school, imagine you were doing everything you were supposed to uh, while the rest of the class was goofing off. Uh, meanwhile, the teacher is just sitting over at his desk, not really paying attention, ignoring everything. Since you need to concentrate, you go to the teacher and ask him to make everyone quiet down. The teacher looks up from his work and says, yeah, I see it, go sit down. You sit down, and then the professor stands up and gives the entire class detention and, I don't know, a 10-page paper due the next day. The entire class, including you. Now tell me you wouldn't argue. Okay? In this scenario, you are Habakkuk. The class is Israel. God is the professor, and the detention and homework assignments are the Chaldeans. The analogy isn't to the same degree as Habakkuk's situation, but it does give us a teeny taste of how he might be feeling. He's frustrated, insulted, confused, and scared. So he finishes his complaint with Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. An answer, God does. The rest of chapter 2 is God's answer, and from verses 2 and 3, we know that it is a prediction of the future. But after verse 3, we get to a very important verse, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Let me read it for you. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. 
but the righteous shall live by his faith. This verse sets up a contrast between righteous people and arrogant people. From the context, we can assume that the first part about the person with the puffed-up soul is supposed to be the Chaldean nation as a whole. Habakkuk uses the same kind of personification in chapter 1. And the Chaldeans were very certain in their belief that they were strong enough to take care of themselves, also seen in chapter 1. But then it says, But the righteous shall live by his faith. It highlights the contrast between the arrogant Chaldeans and unrighteous people, sorry, and righteous people, stating that righteous people trust God while unrighteous people trust themselves. This little half sentence thrown in there so casually is quoted as the foundation of the gospel in the New Testament. And it's such a simple idea. Once we define terms, uh, there's nothing hard to understand about this. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Righteousness is the quality of being morally right or justifiable. The word live means to continue to be alive. It's, it's very simple, but as we know, it's a very difficult concept to um, employ. Just imagine how Habakkuk must have felt when he heard this. You, you know that feeling you get when you're arguing with someone and they make a really good point that you just can't deny? You know that oddly trapped, frustrated feeling? Um, Habakkuk was probably feeling that right about now. But God doesn't just stop with that. Uh, The rest of chapter 2 is basically a list of charges that the Chaldeans will be eventually punished for. There are five charges, or five woes, as Habakkuk calls them. The first one is in verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. The Chaldeans will be punished for their greed and their theft. Secondly, we see verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. The Chaldeans will be punished for trusting in their ill-gotten wealth to keep them safe. Thirdly, verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. The Chaldeans will be punished for their violence. The fourth woe is in verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. The Chaldeans will be punished for humiliating their neighbors. And finally, the fifth thing that the Chaldeans will be punished for is in verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. So they're going to be punished for their idolatry. And so we get into chapter 3 and Habakkuk's retreat, so to speak. So God has spoken his peace, and now we get the picture of Habakkuk submitting to God's will. Verses 2 through 15 are a prayer or a psalm of some sort of Habakkuk in response to what God has said in chapter 2. In verses 1, we see it is according to Shigenoth. Apparently, the word Shigenoth means a song of some sort, but it's a possibility that it could also be referring to a type of musical instrument. Either way, in this case, it's a song, and it's clearly discussing God's power and his wrath. Look at verse 10. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The mountains writhed. Just consider that for a second. Now, the first time I saw the Rockies, I was sitting in a passenger seat somewhere in eastern Colorado, and I thought those big white things over there were clouds. But as we got closer, I realized realized that they were much too solid to be clouds. Now, obviously, since this is a song, the author is using hyperbole. Mountains don't writhe. 
Um, but even the idea that Habakkuk thought that such a powerful illustration should be used here speaks volumes. God really is the most powerful being that there ever was, that there is, and that there ever will be. The might of the Chaldeans doesn't even hold a candle to the might of the omnipotent God. It's awe-inspiring and almost frightening to read this chapter, but let's keep looking at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. So God is using his power for the salvation of his people. He is working for his people, even if we don't see the lightning flashing and the mountains writhing. And so Habakkuk closes with verses 16 and following, which, in my opinion, are the best in the whole book. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. To say it another way, um, I hear my enemies coming, and I'm, I'm standing here shaking with fear, but I will wait for God to fall upon them. And while I wait, even if I have no food or clothes or anything, I will rejoice in my God because he is my strength. And that is the conclusion of the book of Habakkuk. So I don't know about you, but something about that conclusion seems unnatural. Let's review what we've got so far just to make sure. Uh, we started with Habakkuk in a very bad place. He was confused, despairing, and frustrated that he couldn't see God doing anything about all the horrible things that were happening. So he cried out to God and demanded an answer. God answered. He told Habakkuk that he was working. In fact, the Israelites would be punished by the Chaldeans. Uh, the children of Jacob were going to be crushed like they had never been crushed before. So Habakkuk doesn't take this well. He decides to tell God who he is and what he can and cannot do, to which God replies that Habakkuk had better listen up and get out a pen. Write this down, God says. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. He tells Habakkuk that the Chaldeans will be punished for what they're going to do. So then Habakkuk backs down, submits to God's will, and says that he's going to trust God. It still seems unnatural to me. It's almost as though there should be something more between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Or um, it feels like God should say, Oh, but you, Habakkuk, you know, you'll be fine. This isn't going to touch you. Or if that's asking too much, God should at least explain why he's going to use the Chaldeans. Um, but unless your Bibles have something that mine doesn't, there is no explanation and there is no hope. And that's what makes the end of chapter 3 so powerful. This is an example of a person who truly had everything and then had it taken away and no chance to get it back. His world was already bad and it was only going to get worse, but he truly believed that God was enough, and so he found he could still rejoice. How is that normal? Habakkuk couldn't have just been able to accept that. The human response to someone saying, trust me, is to say, I'd really rather not. Um, we humans like to be in control and to be able to say to God, 
What Habakkuk did requires a deviation from the normal pattern of human behavior. It requires God to be working in a person. The only way a person could do this is if God had changed them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Again, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we were dead in our sins, but God made us alive. That is the miracle of salvation. God loved us so much that he sent his own son to die on a cross for us, so to take the penalty for our sins so that we could be with him for eternity. When we turn from our sins and trust God, God's work for our salvation, he comes into us and changes us. And Habakkuk is showing the results of that change. He's trusting God when a normal human wouldn't or couldn't. This theme of trusting God is common throughout Scripture. Um, you can find it with Abraham, David, sorry, Moses, David, Paul, and more. But each time it has a different flavor. With Abraham, the message is to trust God to do the impossible because he, is, he can do everything. With Moses, it's to trust God to do what he, say, what he says he'll do because... He's eternal. With David, the message is to trust God when you're crushed because there is light at the end of the tunnel. With Paul, it's to trust God to save you from your sin. But with Habakkuk, the message is this. Trust God when you're crushed, confused, and there is no hope because God is enough. It's not trust God when you understand why things are happening. Habakkuk never got an explanation. It's not trust God because things will get better. All that Habakkuk got was a promise that things were going to get a lot worse. So the message of Habakkuk is that when you're crushed, confused, and hopeless, trust God because he is enough. Now, do you remember that quote I read at the beginning? What the world needs from the church is our indomitable joy in Jesus in the midst of suffering and sorrow. This indomitable joy in the midst of suffering and sorrow is what Habakkuk had. It wasn't mere happiness or frivolous joking. No, it's not the kind of thing you get from watching cat videos or scrolling, scrolling through pages of memes. Um, I think a good term to describe this would be sober rejoicing. This is a joy that does not leave, even in the worst of trials. So as I end, I want you to ask yourself this question and really take some time to think about this before you answer. Do you have what Habakkuk had? Can you honestly say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. Can you say that truthfully? This is something that you can't just work hard enough for. Um, You can't go to the gym and exercise your spiritual muscles until you have Habakkuk-like faith. You can't change your nature, and this joy is completely contrary to human nature. However, nothing is impossible for God. He can change us, and he does just that every single day. Just look around you right now. All the Christians in the room have been changed, even if they grew up in a church. Like for me, um, what changed was that God gave me a desire to follow him and to be near him. So I ask you, do you have what Habakkuk had? If you don't, God doesn't just leave us in the lurch. Over in Matthew chapter 7, 7 through 8, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, 
and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So ask for joy for, from God, in God, and it will be given to you, because everyone who asks receives. Seek peace and trust in God, and you'll find it. Knock, and the door will be opened into God's mercy and grace. Now I understand that me telling you this is, is odd. Um, an 18-year-old, uh, 17, almost 18-year-old kid preaching to a bunch of older, much more experienced adults about trusting God through the toughest of circumstances. I can imagine how strange it must feel, but like I said, I did choose this book for a reason. Um, I know that things are going to get harder as I get older and that horrible things could happen. Um, just looking at my own parents' lives, um, I could have a daughter almost die of cancer before she even turns 10. Um, my, my own parents could die. At the moment, I can hardly imagine getting through those things in one piece. But Habakkuk was able to rejoice through trials a million times worse than those. And that's what I want. So I'm, I'm kind of preaching to myself here right now. Um, and that's what I, I plan to follow my own directions. I'll probably go to the river tonight and uh, consider that question. Do I have what Habakkuk had? To be perfectly honest with you, I don't think that I do. Um, I don't think that I could be certain that I do until after I've been able to go through uh, think trials like that. But that's not going to stop me from praying for it. When everything else is gone, I want to be able to say that God is enough. So when sorrows like sea billows roll, I want to be able to truthfully say that it is well with my soul because Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. I want that indomitable joy in Jesus in the midst of suffering and sorrow. So let's pray. Dear Jesus, um, thank you for letting us meet here today. Um, please help us to find this indomitable joy in Jesus in the midst of suffering and sorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn with me to our text. Second Timothy chapter 2, we'll be examining verse 15. I believe it's uh, page number 995 in the Pew Bible. Before we begin, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to join me in prayer, and then I'm going to give you a background uh, on Second Timothy, so we're not just jumping into the text uh, without giving a little bit of a background and some context there. So, Lord, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And, uh, Lord, I just pray that you would help me to be able to articulate your word and that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see. This is your word, Lord, not ours. And so we just humbly come before you, ready to receive what it is you have for us. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, a little disclaimer before I, I begin. If I start not making sense, you could give me a little grace or pull me off the stage. My wife thought she was going into labor last night around 9, so we went to the hospital, and I didn't get to bed until around 1 or so in the morning. I'm a little, feeling a little off, but I'm going to do my best. So 2 Timothy is, as the name implies, the second letter 
written to Timothy by the Apostle Paul. Go figure, right? Second Timothy um, is... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Paul and Timothy had a very special relationship, like that of a father and a son. Uh, and I find it inter- interesting that Paul would actually have Timothy at the forefront of his mind uh, in the final stretch of time that he had on earth. And being that Second Timothy is the last letter that Paul would write before his execution, the words of Paul are really just a powerful expression of his heart. And this letter shows us uh, some of his deepest concerns and final thoughts as he encourages young Timothy to stand strong for the faith and oppose all contradictions to it, even if it ultimately costs him his life. So looking at 2 Timothy as a whole, it kind of begins with Paul greeting Timothy as his beloved child in the faith, um, an encouragement to fan into flame the gift of God within him and to just to... you know, serve as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. It moves into our verse in uh, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then Paul reminds Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for correcting and for proof. And then we have Paul telling Timothy that there will be godlessness in the last days. And then reminding him Uh, that all scripture is profitable for teaching, and so he needs to preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So let's take a look at our text, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gain green. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. And so I want to break this verse kind of into two parts here. Uh, 15a, which would be do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker has no need to be ashamed. And then 15b, rightly handling the word of truth. So just looking at the first half of the verse here, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. I think sometimes when we look at, at best or when we think about best, we just think about trying a little bit harder or putting a little bit of extra effort in. But to give something your best really means to give it everything you've got, everything within you to accomplish what you're setting out to do. It literally means, in the Greek, to exert oneself. And I, I, as I was reading this, I, I just that, that word best stuck out to me. I mean, this is so important to Paul. Timothy, do your best. And I wanted to find a way to illustrate what it meant to do your best. And so the first thing that came to my mind was just the, the picture of marathon runners, right? We always hear stories about these marathon runners that are that they, they prepare for these races and sometimes go till dehydration, collapsing. We even hear some stories of people losing their life for running as hard as they can to accomplish these, these races. And so a couple inspirational stories in particular that stand out. Uh, one, in 2017, a Washington State woman was running the, the, the full-size marathon. They have full marathons and then half marathons, which is 26.2 miles. And she had trained for it vigorously. But she collapsed just 12 yards short of the finish line. She was seen attempting to get back up, but her body couldn't bear the weight any longer. 
So she began to crawl toward the finish line, just crawling as, as, as much as she can with whatever energy she has left in her. And when she couldn't crawl anymore because of the, the stones in her hands and in her forearms and in her shins, she just collapses. And she begins to roll and flop towards the finish line. And so now the crowd is looking at her and they're in a frenzy. They're all in an uproar over this woman's dedication. She passes the finish line. Everybody's cheering her on. She completes the marathon. I mean, what a picture is that? We have this woman just, just nothing left in her, but giving it, giving it every ounce of energy to hit the mark. Another inspirational story. In 2014, a 16-year-old Virginia girl gave her very life to finish the race. The young teen had a goal of finishing a half marathon, and she also vigorously trained for it for nine months. And when the day of the race came, she gave it her all. Spectators said she started very strong, but by the 10th mile, she was noticeably fatigued. But instead of giving in to the temptation to quit, she was determined to give it her best, and she finished the half marathon. But shortly after, uh, she collapsed and unfortunately died. But what Paul is telling Timothy here is, Timothy, do everything in your power, everything you can to rightly handle the word of truth. And in so doing, you will be approved by God and you'll have no need to be ashamed before him. Paul charges Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on the teaching, persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and and your hearers. And this is a consistent theme with Paul, right? He's having a battle. You see in Galatians, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You have this, this, this even in the Corinthians, having to deal with them as, as spiritual babies. And, and then with Timothy, having to address all, all this different doctrinal error. But it all, it all comes down to doctrine and not, not handling the word of God right. And so here, in verse Timothy 4, 16, he's telling Timothy, keep that close watch, Timothy. It's like an, an eagle who's, who's perched in a tree looking down at, at, at its prey intently fixated on it, not looking away, but looking at it very carefully, waiting for an opportune time. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy to do. Keep a close watch on the teaching. And then he says, don't just do it once. Don't just do it twice. Don't just do it when you feel like it. Do it all the time. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The question is, save from what? False teachers false doctrine, and ultimately the condemnation that would come with that. And we see that strong language in the book of Jude, right? God's judgment on false teachers. And so I don't want to spend too much time on the first half of the verse. I think just we get the concept now, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker has no need to be ashamed. Now I want to look at the second half of the verse, rightly handling the word of truth. First question I think we should ask is, what is the word of truth here? What is the word of truth? Well, it'd be a no-brainer to say, well, this is the word of truth, right? This is it's the Bible, it's the word of God, this is the word of truth. And that would be correct, but what is the word of truth to Timothy? And so to Timothy, it would be the sacred writings that he was acquainted with uh, from his youth, right? That We get that from 2 Timothy 3.15, but that in conjunction with the gospel teachings of the Apostle Paul. And so the second question then should be, what does it mean to rightly handle it? Some translations say rightly divide, but what it literally means is to cut it straight, like a carpenter would cut wood, or a mason worker would cut stone, or a tent maker would cut fabric or hide. 
It means to proceed on a straight path, to hold a straight course. In other words, don't swerve to the right or to the left. Do not take from it or add to it. Present it exactly as it is. And so the opposite to cutting it straight would then be to swerve, right? You either cut it straight or you swerve to the side. And just imagine that for a minute, since I, I, I really like illustrations. You have the carpenter who's, who's making cabinetry for a beautiful home, and he's working on a table saw, and he's distracted, and he's not paying attention, and he cuts it off to a side, and now the pieces don't fit right, and so the whole thing is useless. Or else the mason worker is cutting stone, and he's getting ready to make a beautiful archway to a palace, and he's sloppy with his work and, and not diligent and distracted, and he cuts it off to the side. And so now, in order to get it to fit, there has to be a lot of extra mortar slapped in there, and so it's just going to look sloppy. It's not going to hold up right. It's good for nothing. And again, the tent maker cutting fabric, getting distracted, cutting to the side. And now, when you go to seam it all together, you have leaks. It's leaky. And so we can kind of see this picture of swerving throughout First and Second Timothy. And I think the first example we have here, the contrast of cutting it straight, would come in verse 18 in Second Timothy 2. But we'll read from 16 forward. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved, from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, they're upsetting the faith of some. So they swerved, ultimately, by going around spreading that the resurrection has already happened. Let's take a look at another example, though, and we can find that example in First Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And then finally, we can turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6, looking at the 20th and 21st verse. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So how do they swerve? What's the common theme here? What's the flow? What's the language used? Well, they swerve. We can see, we can see five different word groupings here. They swerved because of irreverent babble. And an irreverent babble, we just sung holy, holy, holy. Irreverence is the opposite of reverence, right? It's unholy. It's not regarding God as holy. It's unholy chatter. And we see different doctrine throughout these verses. Different doctrine, again, Hymenaeus and Philetus. 
saying that the resurrection has already come. We have myths, so just this, this, these myths that are being spread among the people, spreading like game green, the scriptures tell us, and then vain discussions about it all. So these, these pointless discussions, this vain chatter that's happening, and ultimately contradictions, contradictions among the false doctrine, and then ultimately contradictions to the word of God. And I think we see a lot of this stuff in in the evangelical world today. Preachers that are twisting doctrine, tickling people's ears, telling them they can have their best life now, um, told that God wants them to be rich. Ministers, or so-called ministers, that have no reverence for God, willing to preach whatever at the pulpit. I think now more than ever... We have to be cautious as to what we allow in, as to what we listen to on the radio, as to what we put on the TV, because there are so many new and strange teachings emerging. I think of some of the stuff that, when I back before I stopped watching it, TBN and and Daystar, the things that were being put on, and you can see certain ministers that are obviously just there for the money, and other people that are are just completely sideways in their teaching and in theology. But we need to guard ourselves. More importantly, we need to guard our children from these things as well, remaining alert as to what people and things are influencing them. And I think as an application from this text to ourselves, and, and again, this is a pastoral epistle, so we have, to, we have to do that you know, rightly and through that light, but, but an application to us would be to be like Timothy and to rightly handle the word of truth so that we might not have to be ashamed before God. And what I mean is fathers in your homes with your wives and your children and mothers with your children if you don't have a believing husband or you're a widow. We must rightly handle the word. But to do that means that you have to know what the word says and it requires study. And ultimately, we should study like the Bereans, right? So when we hear something Outside, that sounds contrary to what we know or what we've heard uh, from our minister at the pulpit. We can then look at it to see if these things are so. And if they're not, then we know we can disregard it. And then that'll put a safeguard on us from this chatter infiltrating the church and spreading among us. And, and, and I'm confident of different things with this church. I'm actually very... Um, very excited about you guys because I've talked with so many of you, and, and just the fact that you guys know your Bible so well is very, uh, very inspiring. But either way, we still have to guard ourselves. We still have to rightly handle that word. We still have to protect ourselves and our children from letting these things creep in. And it really is so important to rightly handle the word of truth, maybe even more important than you realize, because if we look at the second half of the 18th verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2, In regards to Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, by saying the resurrection has already happened, if you look down, it says that they are upsetting the faith of some. That they're actually upsetting people's faith. And that can happen. And I I think, you know, in, in choosing this text, I think part of that probably comes from my background. And when I gave my testimony on the day of, of, of my baptism here, mine and my wife's baptism, I, I left out some of my story. And uh, I, I come from a very uh, charismatic background. I come from like an apostolic, new apostolic reformation type stuff, a charismatic background. 
And, um, and I know what it is to deal with irreverent babble and contradictions and myths. I know what it is to, to see these things and how they affect people's lives and these, these little things that creep in that might seem harmless, but when they get in, they begin to eat away and spread like gangrene green and cause destruction and upset the faith of people. And so really the takeaway from this, this message, this 20 minutes that I've been given, is just to be diligent to study, to show ourselves approved, to rightly handle the word of God as a church that we might never be found to cause another to be stumbling in their faith or upsetting their faith. Let us pray. Well, Father, I, I thank you for your word and for being entrusted with it. Um, and I thank you for, for using me here at this pulpit to speak your truths. And I pray you would bless us with the ability to apply this and to let it sink in and to apply it to our lives, Lord. May we be diligent to be found approved by you. May we do our very best to be approved by you and rightly handle the word, just like Paul charged Timothy. Bless us as we go. That's in Jesus' name we pray.